right, welcome in, ladies and gentlemen. Let's get right into it. So throughout our lives, we piece together a personality for ourselves. And that is either inadvertently or consciously. We stitch together from bits and pieces of other individuals who make some kind of impact on us for one reason or another. Say, if you have a person that you idolize, you will most likely take on some of their traits, you know, pick up a habit or two. Uh, maybe you even go into the same occupation. Right? Uh, if you despise somebody, conversely, you might harden that resolve against being like that person, solidifying one or two of the many traits that kind of act as a bulwark against becoming like a person that you despise. So, in a way that's mostly understood today by the idea that we are all products of our environment. Each of us is a culmination of a self-styled Frankenstein's monster, so to speak. Now, who we are is determined by the pieces we actively choose to attach to our being, right? Meshing with the pieces that attach themselves and, you know, just kind of stick by way of our subconscious. And being a uh, actor and a theater goer for 20 odd years, uh, I'm very familiar with this concept uh, because we, I've, I've studied a ton of different uh, methods and theories and explanations on what exactly acting is, right? You can imagine yourself living in somebody else's mind, their skin. Uh, you can do exactly what they do. If they're a banker, you go get a job at a bank. Like you, you do everything to try and become that person. Absolutely. Uh, or on the other end of the spectrum, you can view acting as that person as putting on a physical mask, right? That's, that's more often than not what people do when they act. They put on a mask and the mask is what they imagine that person's movements and voice and facial reactions and, and everything, what they imagine all of that to be. Which kind of does make us this Frankenstein's monster, right? Uh, but when we act, we do it for fun. In but the same thing happens to us in reality. That's why you have actors that are so good at doing what they do is because they're tapping into something that maybe we're pre-programmed to do naturally. So we have a bit of a thesis question here. And that is, once we strip away the parts of ourselves that are directly influenced by others, can we identify what parts are left as our genuine personality? Ooh. 
didn't think you'd get this deep <laughs> from from this kind of podcast, did you? Now, from when we're little babies, uh, we imitate everybody around us. We that's I mean that's how we learn, right? We learn by mimicry, uh, and then we begin to develop some serious memory retention. Soon enough, we acquire language, shapes, colors, all the basics. However, we also learn habits, and we graft certain traits from those we perceive around us as we grow. Uh, if, if anyone ever told you, hey, you know, you, you laugh just like your dad, or you walk just like your grandfather, or uh, you do this, that, or the other thing, like a friend of yours or a sister or a brother, this is what they're talking about. Because your response, probably like 90% of the time is, oh, really? I do? Huh. I, I never, I never noticed. I can guarantee you that's most of you out there. Right? But this is why is because we're naturally stitching onto ourselves bits and pieces of other people. Now, the traits and habits that often stick to us are ones that we kind of subconsciously decide benefit us by observing how they serve others. This is how we learn how to lie, right? Uh, if, if we see our father lying to our mother and they get away with it and we're watching this whole thing like a sitcom, right? We understand all of what's going on and we know what the lie is. We know what the truth is and we understand the implications of the actions. And we see our father get away with telling that lie, let's say. Now what we have learned is oh if i'm in an unfavorable situation i can just lie and i can get out of that situation but that's we haven't just learned the utilization of telling a lie what we've done is we have mapped onto our brain well uh, all of the nuances that our our father used when telling the lie. So we'll probably stand the way he stood. We'll probably use the same vo uh, vocal cadence and tone. We might emphasize certain words and phrases. Um, we, we might gesture with our hands. We might stand very still. And that, that will be true for whatever the initial act is whenever we're doing that for the very first time um, over time it it will become our own and we'll we'll adapt and alter it and it'll it'll become something uh, entirely ours so humans are fluid Right, there we're aging creatures. We develop, we adapt, we grow from what we learn. Right, 
and and we make things our own through major or minor tweaking and this i I mean long story short to make this uh, you know not a incredibly long uh, podcast but that's the first step in us getting our heroes and idols people that we revere and that are honored in society because those are the people that exhibit parts of their personalities that have the greatest resonance and positive impact on us. A great way to understand this is from the reverse side, right? Let's let's take Bill Cosby, right? He was once a great icon and he fell from grace due to his heinous actions, making it evident that people can, you know, no longer resonate with the positive aspects he portrayed because who's watching the Cosby show nowadays? It's still a great show. It still has a lot of very positive messages and about family and morality and it's a it's a family story about growing up not just with the kids but uh, with uh, Heathcliff Huxtable as well, uh, and he, at, at least for me and my generation, that was one of the first characters that showed us what it was like to be a good dad. At least on screen, <laughs> I have a very good dad. So, I imagine there's a there were a ton of people uh, who were young adults or young fathers at the time who may have watched that show and really liked it. And those people probably emulated Bill Cosby's character, at least a little bit, in one way or another. And it also helped that uh, Bill Cosby, outside of, you know, the terrible, horrific things that he did, uh, he, he also did a whole bunch of other uh, good deeds that painted him in such a bright light in the public eye. He created the first uh, cartoon that depicted uh, black characters with proportional features. He uh, sent a whole bunch of uh, young disenfranchised kids off to college through uh, various funds and foundations. Like, he did a whole bunch of really good things. But that's no longer what people see when they look at Bill Cosby. They only see the monster. And that is because it's the greatest part of his trait, of his actions, of his personality that is now presented forward. So... Yeah, now we can no longer resonate with this guy. Right? And speaking of monsters, (laughs) this lets us turn to Frankenstein's monster for a little bit more in-depth analysis. Now, right off the bat, because at first glance this might sound like it's going to be really similar, but uh, this, this line of thought doesn't directly deal with uh, Carl Jung and the collective unconscious or 
uh, his study of dreams. Although you you could draw a line to it, but it would be kind of squiggly and it's it's not very straightforward. Uh, I guess you could add the lens of analytical psychology to what we're trying to achieve if you wanted to add some differing perspective. But from looking at it through other psychological studies, um, a few other things might hit a little closer to home uh, rather than young. Um, now, we, we might immediately think of, say, introversion and extroversion, the, uh, the Holland Codes, uh, and Edward Sprenger's personality model. Now, we also have the works of psychologists like Sigmund Freud, who identified three significant components of a person's personality, the id, ego, and superego. And we, we look at these because we are dealing with personality, right? We're, we're dealing with the stitching together of certain personality traits. But we're, we're not analyzing what will happen or what the result of something might be because of personality trait X. Um, and we're, we're not really even getting at what causes certain personality traits to begin with. We're not looking at the start or the beginning. We're going underneath it all. We're pulling those away to try and understand what the skeletal structure is of our personality. Right? And this this makes me think very vividly about Frankenstein's monster because it's it's basically what he is what is the monster right because frankenstein builds him with a whole bunch of dead people right he stitches him together and he's this enormous gangly gross horrific amalgamation of uh, corpses but he's not just a monster, right? He's very articulate. He's really intelligent. He he exhibits all of these very human characteristics. He he wants to be accepted. He wants community. He wants he wants all of the things that we can empathize because we want them also. Now, as it is a story that's so well written we can easily identify with the creature Victor created. He's created, immediately abandoned, without knowing why. Uh, he has no understanding of his purpose. He, he has the concept of purpose and that he might should have one. Uh, he has the knowledge of how he appears to others. In, like like I said, he has this longing for companionship and, and fellowship with other people. And he's afraid. He's afraid of being abandoned. He's afraid of the cruelty and the, the vitriol that he's met with whenever he runs into some 
village people. Right? Though this this gets a little bit ahead of where we want to focus. We we want to look at the actual grafting of the cadavers themselves. And the the <laughs> the grafting of the personality traits is kind of interesting because if you if you think of you know um personality traits resulting from other people's actions those actions are now dead they're done they're gone you can't rewind time and recreate them so in a way you are taking bits and pieces of things that are dead and amalgamating yourself with those uh, dead bits of actions a little morbid, but you know, I I work in a, a field of psychology. I work for a psychology department, so I I hear way more morbid and crazy and uh, fanciful things than that on a daily basis. So, what does science fiction have to tell us about the grafting of personality? of the the building onto a base skeletal structure of who somebody is. So let's let's take a few examples and see what we can glean uh, if we can get any fleshed out ideas that answer this question of getting down to the raw personality. Now the Jedi and Sith from Star Wars for example, they have two very intense answers. The Jedi, specifically those who learn how to become one with the Force and they exist beyond death and they're, they're manifestations of the cosmic force and they appear as Force ghosts, they have this lifelong journey of self-discovery that culminates in a sort of ultimate realization of how the Force creates and maintains balance. Now, these Jedi realize that who they are meant to be and they, they're meant to blend and complement the natural flow of the Force uh, to bolster the version uh, of the circle of life that Star Wars gives us. Now, what they embody, because they must, is utter selflessness and duty to safeguard the light in the galaxy. But this end is not necessarily to keep balance. The Jedi philosophies reason that because there is such naturally occurring darkness and evil rampaging through the galaxy, that the Jedi must do what they can to strengthen and preserve the light and the peace wherever they can as the evil that they're fighting can never really be snuffed out completely. Which is true for us in the real world. There, There's always going to be this balance, right? And there's... I, I forget who said it, but... It might have been Tennyson or somebody like that. But uh, there's, there's a saying that 
it goes all evil needs to do to win is for good men to do nothing I, I'm butchering it I, I know but yeah you, you get the idea same concept So Jedi, <laughs> uh, they are very mindful of their own thoughts and insights. They're they're kind of doing our Frankenstein personality study on themselves uh, their entire time as a Jedi. Um, though they're they're kind of looking at it from a different perspective than we might. Uh, Obi Wan Kenobi tells Luke Skywalker to be wary of his own emotions and feelings. And that they could be, in fact, manifested by his enemies and used against him. Now, it's almost as if the Jedi can learn to see their progression and their growth and can subsequently shape it to their betterment, giving them stronger powers in the Force. Now, imagine if we could do that to ourselves, kind of have a out-of-body experience and we can look down on ourselves and see oh okay well this is going to work and this is not going to work and if we tweak this a little bit how how wildly beneficial for us would that be um, and I, I mean if we can if there are people out there that say that we can do that and I imagine that they are would that mean that we're also Frankenstein as well as his monster? Can we ultimately have this, the last say, the influencing push of the button that creates exactly who we are? Now, a ton of people will say yes, but they I imagine they don't know all of what that entails it's it's going to take the most ruthless of discipline it's it's going to take every ounce of focus that we have and nowadays i mean with every everybody being pulled in so many different directions it's incredibly difficult to do it's almost impossible now conversely we have the sith who are much more sinister take on the question of identifying and deciding on the self. Now, in fact, the Sith not only figure out who they are beyond the uh, exertions of outside influences, but they also project and force who they are onto others with such cunning and guile that those people lose all sense of themselves entirely and they become puppets and slaves to the will of the Sith. Now, uh, the relationship between Darth Sidious and Vader is a prime example of this notion. Sidious has projected and ingrained so much of what he and the Sith are onto Vader that Vader loses all sight of who he truly is. He's the chosen one. He's meant to bring balance to the Force. And, I mean, he does at the end, but it, it takes him fighting his son 
and the emperor about to kill him to really dig down below all of what Sidious has stitched onto him to recognize well oh shit this is <laughs> this is who I actually am and that's my son and I gotta get him out of there so we have one faction the Jedi who discover themselves as part of the living force and they commune with it and uh, they eventually become the cosmic force and they focus and they bolster only that which makes them truly themselves then we have the sith who have such an understanding of who they are that they can also force those traits of their own actual personalities no no grafted bits but themselves they can force those onto others as they see fit now both parties become an ultimate version of themselves and they wield that understanding as both a weapon and an immortal part of who they are now the force is made manifest in both just like life and nature are made stronger in us when we tend those bits correctly according to our own needs but remember the goal is to identify who we are not who we become by way of influence of others now in keeping with the Star Wars theme for a good second we also have one of my absolute favorite speeches from the Andor show it's Luthen Rao's speech uh, to Lonnie, the ISB agent that Luthen has working for him on the inside. And it's one of the most chilling and personal speeches about the self that I think that we've had in mainstream media in a good while. And being that it's delivered by Stellan Skarsgård, yeah, that, that really does help drive it home. I mean, just stellar acting chops. I mean, he talks about realizing who he is, who his enemy is, and that he understands that he is forced to use their weapons to fight like they do. And when all is said and done, he looks at himself and he knows that he has to burn who he is at the core to accomplish his goals of justice and restoration of the New Republic. So he's a martyr and he knows it. Like he's he's saying that, well, he's not implicitly saying this, but he, he understands that he might survive to the end. He might live through it. But once the Empire is defeated, he's not going to be him anymore. He, he will have sacrificed who he really is at his core, his personal skeleton, or personality skeleton he'll have given all of that up by way of becoming his enemy to destroy his enemy and he is fine with becoming the demon that needs to be put down in order to save everyone everybody else and that's something that you can only truly accomplish if you're fully aware of yourself ready to sacrifice what makes you 
you. But by definition, that's not something that you can do unless you figured out who you are in the first place. And God dang it, Skarsgård. I mean, it, this this uh, performance is just one of the key moments that made me love that show. Um, I, I know a lot of people think Andor was kind of boring, but as far as like a war story goes, like a story that has espionage and intrigue and mystery and like it was phenomenal to me uh, now branching off to a different sci-fi property one of one of the shows that I immediately thought of when uh, I, I came up with this prompt was Stargate SG-1 and specifically because of the character Teal'c. Now Teal'c, for everyone who uh, hasn't seen SG-1 before, Teal'c is what's called a Jaffa. Basically, a human that's gone down a different path of uh, the evolutionary line, and they've developed this pouch that houses a, a uh, symbiote, a, a alien symbiote a parasite and that parasite gives them uh, longevity it heals them it acts as like a kidney a liver it, Jaffa cannot live very long without a symbiote it's it's also their immunity system so there's a whole race of these guys called the Jaffa right and the Jaffa are used as slaves and soldiers and personal attendants by the gold. And they have been for tens of thousands of years. So the gold have purported themselves to be gods. Right? There's a slew of them that came to Earth, and that's where we get all the different pantheons and all that kind of good stuff um, but then they went back out into space and they still keep those god personas right now the Jaffa developing alongside them uh, have this very warrior like culture um, and that's I, I'm sure there's a ton more to it but art and language and history and, and dance and all that kind of good stuff. And it's implied that there is, but we don't see a lot of it in the show. Uh, we, we see a lot of the, the warrior aspect of their culture. Now, in the show, in the progress of Stargate SG-1, uh, the humans of Earth ally themselves with the Jaffa in order to overthrow and defeat the Gold and to free the Jaffa from slavery. So we have a really good case study in the Frank Frankenstein creature personality query here because the show largely deals with Teal'c and the Jaffa people figuring out who they are, right? They're tearing away the pieces that the gold have placed on them for hundreds of thousands of years 
and they're they're figuring out who they are as individuals as well as a people and it's a I, I mean it's like 10 years worth of this it's a it's a long study it's it's a lot to take in and decipher and learn about yourself so with the Jaffa and with Tilk we're given a really great physical representation uh, as well as an emotional representation for that matter an emotional embodiment of how we might answer our query if we're pulling away a whole bunch of ourselves that is detrimental right is the result of anger or fear or subjugation or something that's put there with not too good of an intention right uh, and yeah I, I, growing up with that I think that might have done something psychologically to me <laughs> because I'm a pretty self-aware person so I, I don't know maybe maybe Stargate SG-1 really helped me uh, without me knowing it as a kid now although Star Wars and Stargate give us some really great and varied answers to our ultimate question of how we identify parts of ourselves that aren't personally grown. I think there's another franchise that might play around with this question even more, and that's Doctor Who. Now, Doctor Who is a show about a time-traveling alien, and he, the BBC whenever they made the show they did a really really clever thing uh, they made it to where he is of a race of aliens that uh, they regenerate like right on the spot whenever they're about to die so they did this to, uh, in order to recast the character to keep it going for I think it's like 50, 60 years now. Um, and it's it's a it's one of science fiction's longest running shows. But it's had like 15, 16 people play the role of the doctor. But they they address in the show every every time that the doctor regenerates uh, what makes the doctor the doctor, right? The, it's it's almost like they're inviting us to step into those shoes. Like, what makes you, you? And after every regeneration, the doctor has to play around with this discovery. And we as the audience are taken on that same journey. Um, however... In this show, the, the difference is we're taking on that journey quite a few times, like well over a dozen times. Like we're, it's not just a one and done where we're doing this quite often. And especially uh, with those fans uh, like myself that have seen all of the episodes they've followed for a good couple of deca uh, decades, we're now very familiar with this question and uh, how we go about answering it. Although with these current kind of rewrites and weird reboot, quote unquote, 
that they're doing with the biology of the character, uh, especially with Jodie Whittaker's doctor. And uh, now, now we have two doctors. Uh, it's it's really confusing. Um, they and they flat out stated that the doctor isn't even a time lord entirely. So I I guess we might not continue this question with this character. Either that or we're we're going to get this question in an entirely different direction. Either way, uh, I I think it'll be really interesting to watch going forward. Now, if we want to take a grim and dark lens to our dissection of this psychology of Frankenstein's monster personality theory, uh, I mean, it doesn't get any more grim or dark than Warhammer 40k. And funny enough, uh, even though 40k has arguably the biggest and most diverse amount of lore and history in just about any sci-fi franchise, I think there's surprisingly little to say uh, in our regard to psychological inquiry. However, what can be said is also the most extreme, like as in everything in 40K, because of course it is, everything you examine in this universe is going to be the utmost. It's going to be the most extreme. I, I mean, just look, look at the look at the main cast of characters, right? Who actually has the most freedom to do the inner self deep dive that we're trying to do, and they are able to go down this journey of self discovery. The Primarchs. Maybe. Maybe the Primarchs a little bit. Uh, aside from the Emperor of Mankind doing a actual hardware install on all of his quote-unquote sons, uh, they do have a bit of independence, and they, uh, especially reading the books that have uh, ro Robot Girly Man in it, uh, <laughs> he has a good deal of this... Uh, this introspective, this kind of self-questioning and whatnot. Um, and we, uh, aside from ones like Mortarion or Sanguinius or, uh, let's see, maybe Fulgrim too, we, we, get, we get a lot of that with, say, Lionel Johnson or uh, Robuti Gilliman. But, uh, yeah, how about the Guardsmen of the Astro Militarum? No. The Guardsmen, uh, they definitely don't have the freedom to uh, do a deep dive on their personality because, you know, they're probably not going to be alive the longest. Uh, how about the standard civilian of the Imperium? Definitely not. Because if, if you live in the Im Imperium of Man and you're just a civilian, you're probably in for a bad time. You're, you're, you better hide. <laughs> Something is going to happen to you. Like if, if there's a incursion of chaos, demons or something on one part of your planet, 
and say, oh, I don't know, the Grey Knights show up, they'll go all the way to the other side of the planet where you are and say, hey, you're corrupted by demons. You'll just be like, I don't know what you're talking about, and they'll kill you. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, oh, if, if you know anything about the citizens who live on Coruscant in uh, Star Wars, like in the lower levels, the the like substrata of where all the uh, skyscrapers and everything is. Yet, being a basic civilian in the Imperium of Man kind of goes along with that. Uh, you you accept the lies as truth in order to make them real. <laughs> so. Yeah, they're probably not doing a huge introspective deep dive. Now, if we crank this up to a couple degrees, um, how about the death core of Krieg? No, just just no. They have their entire core taken. They're, they're entirely external influence. There's even more so than the Jaffa were by the Gold. The, the death core of Krieg down to the bone is just do the emperor's will fight and kill in his name that is all that they are there is there's no more uh, I mean there's literally a mantra telling the soldiers of Krieg that their duty is to serve the emperor's will and that his will is for them to fight and die and they repeat this mantra over and over while marching in formation across the galaxy to swarm over the most desolate of battlefields. So, not those guys. Um, how about the orcs? Do the orcs have this ability? Are, are, they, are they doing this Frankenstein personality deep dive? You know what? Surprisingly, yes. I think, I mean, the, the orcs, and I mean every last one of them, all they want is to fight and smash and kill and rage and commit wah across the universe and to find strong enemies to fight. That is their life, and they love it. And they have really cool, spooky powers. <laughs> they, they have this immense imagination and in a universe where you basically have four space satans running around in uh, the, in literal hell that everybody uses kind of as a highway, um, scarily enough, a powerful imagination yields actual results in this universe. And what that means for the orcs is that if they believe in something hard enough, Whatever that thing is becomes reality. So, for instance, there, there's a battle where there's a bunch of orcs fighting some space marines. And the space marines are just gunning down all of the orcs, right? Until there came a group of orcs that would not die. And this surprised the space marines until they heard the orcs all whispering under their breath. <laughs> I'm a tank, I'm a tank, I'm a tank, I'm a tank, I'm a tank. Which means that they couldn't die to bullets, to, to normal gunfire. 
So not only can the orcs identify who they are at their core and have that become an external result, they can go way and far beyond that. They, they can make up a ton of external influence and impose those influences on each other to such a degree that those influences magically, through the power of imagination, become reality. I mean, if an orc boss wants his boys to go faster, he will paint them red because red is the fastest color. And it works. It's mind-blowing and it's, it's hilarious because of just how stupid and ridiculous it is. So, yeah, I, I, I love the orcs. Um, in all likelihood, the orcs may in fact be the closest thing to a perfect answer to our situational query. Uh, down to a one of them, every orc knows exactly who they are, what their identity is, their life goals. Um, I mean, every character has this well-honed focus that ends up in it, like their actual internal monologue, their internal focus has a presence in reality because it can actually bend to their collective will. It, it may also be due to the fact that absolutely everything in 40k is dialed up to a factor of 20 and, and I do mean everything like right down to the orcs reality bending color theory and the fact that acts of debauchery committed by whole worlds uh, actually birthed a giant space satan so it makes sense that this universe has so much to say in regards to what we're trying to figure out it, probably by accident, but they did it anyway. So to conclude, <laughs> I I don't really think that there is a conclusion with posing this kind of question. I, I think it's going to be a lifelong journey kind of a thing. I think it's something that everybody has to decide and figure out for themselves I, I think it's going to be something that once we do start to tap into what lies beneath the stitched traits, what what is actually us, then we can start figuring out how to how to bolster that, how to poke and prod that and, and harness it. Right? A maybe the goal is that self-realization, that quote unquote true and inner self, as the Buddhists might say. I mean it it might sound corny and even regressive, but that's also kind of the point. Discovering who we really are at our core and our most pure version of self. I I know it sounds like a really cheesy like done to death movie trope like oh if we could just figure out who we really are then we can beat the bad guy and we can save the day i i, I am remembering uh the first couple of minutes of the first black panther movie 
whenever uh, T'Challa is fighting M'Baku and M'Baku is kicking his ass, right? And you can hear uh, his mom in the background going, show him who you are. And th that, that kind of bullshit line makes him win. <laughs> like, okay, sure. Uh, b before this, he was just, you know, not fighting seriously. Uh, okay. And suddenly M'Baku doesn't have the skill to counter. It's it, yeah. It's just a, it's just a movie trip that's always kind of befuddled me and and kind of made me grumbled because ah, uh, it's it's just not realistic at all, not really. Um, I understand, you know, movies, fiction, it's fake, whatever. But I'm trying to relate to this, and I can't because. You know, not not because he's a superpowered human, but because he's he's doing something that can be done in reality. Like there there have been like underdogs coming around and winning the fight in the last second. That's not, it, you know, that's that's not out of the ordinary. Uh, it's not so crazy an idea, but like. To suddenly have this immense well of power just burst up and, and then you beat somebody that's five times your size. Come on, dude. <laughs> Whatever. But yeah, that is all I had for today, guys. Thank you so much for tuning back in and stick around for more Sci-Fi Unchained. But for now, live long and prosper, my friends. And may the Force be with us all.